can't tell the story of the internet without talking about cats, and you can't tell the story of cybersecurity and its future without talking about China. That's Peter Singer, co-author of the new book Cybersecurity and Cyber War: What Everyone Needs to Know, explaining a key insight about the cyber world in which we all live and that affects us all. In this podcast, Singer, a senior fellow in foreign policy at Brookings and director of the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence, talks about how individuals, businesses, and governments need to be thinking about cyber issues. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So why did you write this book and who do you think should read it? The idea behind the book is that cyber issues have uh, too long been left only to the it crowd, uh, you know, jokingly the IT folks, when it's something, whether you're working in politics and media and military and law and business, or just frankly, as a good citizen or as a good parent, you need to know more about. Uh, it connects to all these different issues, and yet most of us have been operating from this position of, frankly, ignorance, and we're being taken advantage of, whether it's ignorance and someone tricking you into clicking that link when you really ought not to have, to ignorance in terms of that business that came in and um, sold you the secret sauce that would solve all your cyber problems when you really shouldn't have, to at the um, political level, at the national level and global level, where we're caught in this weird space of, in some ways, we're being uh, scared into doing things we ought not to, and in other areas, we're not scared enough. And so the idea of the book was to create a easy-to-read guide to how it all works, why it all matters, and what can we do about it, the we, everything from the individual level up to the business, to the national, to the global. And along the way, have some fun. Tell the interesting stories of the people and the anecdotes uh, with the idea of not just it's you know a great way to uh, tell, uh, explain something, but also there's the underlying lesson here that it's not about the technology itself. If you understand if you want to understand mm-hmm. why something's happening, but also why it's not happening, always look to the people and the organizations behind it. So the idea was basically uh, hit that uh, hopefully sweet spot in both the political space, the business space, and let's be honest, the book selling space. Right. So it's kind of for everybody. All of us who are on the internet or use computers, which are everywhere in our daily lives. The emphasis uh, in the title is what everyone needs to know. Everyone does not need to know how to computer program, but Mm -hmm. we do need to know how uh, to handle these issues in a business sense. Uh, To give you an illustration of of the gap here, 70% of business executives have made a cybersecurity decision for their business. Not 70% of CTOs or CSOs, but business execs in general. Look, this carries over to um, nonprofits, be they a think tank like a Brookings to a human rights organization. I was speaking to people like that. Leaders in these organizations have all made these kind of decisions, and yet no major MBA program teaches on cybersecurity. To um, same for public policy schools. Um, same for you know, we our diplomats are uh, dealing more and more with these issues. If you're working in China right now, or Brazil, or Germany, cyber issues have certainly come up. Not just you know about how do I protect my password, but as a policy thing. And yet they're not a, a, in there as a regular course of study. To our role as citizens, we've heard of things like you know the NSA and Cyber Command or Stuxnet. Right. What do we think about it? What does it mean for our votes? To again, our roles as individuals, um, 
you know, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our kids when they're online? And so the idea is uh, to have a um, to explain these issues in an easy to understand manner, but also let's be honest, it's also for you know, hopefully for the specialists in terms of trying to push some of the boundaries um, in terms of the theory. The main way of going about this is the idea that while on one hand, um, a lot of us didn't understand the technology and how it all works, the flip side is the IT crowd, the IT folks didn't understand the ramifications into other sectors. Sure. And frankly, there's no topic, there's no issue that's ever stovepiped in the real world. And yet that's how we go about it. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, often the books that are written on these things or the policy side. And so one of the ways that we're pushing uh, the the bounds here in terms of the, the policy equation and for people who are experts in it is by taking lessons from different fields. So applying lessons from history, applying lessons from biology. Um, you know, history would be uh, looking at the story behind the real rise of the pirates of the Caribbean and then how I, their time ended. I love that and, part. Yeah, and what does that give us for lessons on how to um, deal with some of these state-sponsored uh, cyber militias out there as an example? Or if you want to understand how to better defend yourself as a business or as an individual or as a nation, don't just think in terms of classic military defense, which is how it's been framed here. Go to the idea of resilience, which is a physiological mm -hmm. idea and also a psychological um, idea in terms of relationships. And basically it turns on um, on the physical. Uh, when I'm defending myself, my body expects that bad things will happen. If my outer layer of defense gets penetrated, it gets cut, my body doesn't shut down. It um, figures out how to isolate it. It figures out how to limit it. It figures out how to triage what's important, protect what's most important, what's not. Resilience is the difference between not thinking that anything bad is going to happen, but rather preparing to succeed in a bad world. It's the idea that, um, you know what, you might get knocked down. It's all about how do you get back up? You can compare that to how we've gone about cyber security so far in our political discourse, but also as organizations. It's, it's very much been a, uh, a military defense type paradigm, but you wrote in the book that maybe a public health framework is a better approach. That's one of the others is drawing from that. So the idea of uh, if we're building new organizations, we don't just need um, to just keep throwing money at the um, classic defense security side of the realm. And it's interesting. One of the things we, we, we talk about in the book was we went around the world meeting with various folks from you know the highest levels of government, not just in the US, but China and France, UAE, you name it, but also, you know, all the way down to the teenage hacker. But I remember having a conversation with a, they were a four-star in the US military and the spending that we've done on on cyber has um, escalated in recent years. I mean, just to give an illustration, the word uh, cyber went from not being used in military documents to it was in the Pentagon's budget last year, 147 times. Um, but what I asked him was, how do we measure the payoff? So when you spend 1% more, and they're not spending 1% more, you know, the cyber command budget's effectively doubled in, the, um, in its headquarters in just the last couple of years. Uh, but when you do that, when you spend 1% more, are you getting 1% more capability? Are you getting 10% more capability? Are you getting 1,000% more capability? If you can't answer that, then how do you know what to spend? It's, it's moving from that or the idea that I can... Um, set up a deterrent structure. A lot of, there's a lot of cold war thinking in this space because um, people kind of go back to what they're comfortable 
and and right. Cold War has that. And so the idea that you know I can deter my way, yeah, that may not always be the best, particularly when you're not in a um, what they call a dyadic relationship, where it's not us and the Soviets, but there's right. a realm of multiple actors out there. So you see this with how much we're spending on cyber offense versus cyber defense. Um, depending on who's doing the count, we're spending about four times as much or um, four to two times as the different estimates on cyber offense research as we are cyber defense, which is uh, a lot like standing in a glass house and thinking that investing in sharper stones will scare away all the neighborhood kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but to go to your, you know, the, the public health is that you also need things um, where you might get just as much or more payoff from the equivalent of like the Centers for Disease Control, which was uh, this, and you know, we go back to the story of it. It was, you know, this is one of the most effective government agencies in all of human history right. that starts out with a couple of guys literally collecting 10 bucks to buy land in Georgia. And this was and, only how many years ago? Not this that is, long ago. Uh, right after World War II. Right. And um, they originally focus on eradicating malaria, mm-hmm. and then they move into you know helping on everything from smallpox to the flu. But the idea is that this kind of organization um, became a place for funding um, research into threats to all. To became a um, site of trusted information, trusted information in terms of scientists wanting to know the you know the latest. DNA layout of um, this new strand of uh, flu that's spreading to trusted information to you and I on um, what kind of hygiene to protect ourselves. And one of the lessons their research showed is that, you know, um, Benjamin Franklin was right. And, you know, uh, an ounce of prevention really does pay off. And that that carries over to cyber where we need uh, not only this kind of R&D on the threats for all, but we need these kind of trusted locales that uh, can be a, a clearinghouse of information. And... Um, Finally, that it's not just about high end, it's about all the way down to the hygiene level, mm-hmm. the personal hygiene level. You know, there's um, personal hygiene that we teach our kids. We need the same of cyber hygiene. This idea is not just it's a best way to protect yourself from threats, but it's also about building an ethic of responsibility to protect others. And oh, by the way, it even has a payoff on the international relations side. The CDC, which was supposed to be focused on diseases, actually turned out to be a um, important locale for building cooperation with the Soviets at the height of the Cold War. Right. We were still able to come together around certain things with them. And that may be uh, where we need uh, a similar kind of approach to dealing with um, states like China, where there's certainly a lot of tension. There's definitely a lot of cyber tension, but that doesn't mean that there aren't areas where you can still fruitfully both work together. That's one of the very forward-thinking proposals you have in the book. But again, looking back to the history of the Cold War mentality, the US and USSR, obviously nuclear weapons, mutual assured destruction, uh, a lot of people do try to think of part of the US-China relationship as being a cyber war, a cyber conflict. You spend a lot of time in the book about that. What What's right and what's wrong about that kind of thinking? What's right is that there is definitely a competition, a tension that's there that presents great danger to us all. And, you know, look, the the word China pops up as much in the book as cats do. Um, mm-hmm. You can't tell the story of the internet without talking about uh, cats, and you can't tell the story of cybersecurity and its future without talking about China. And that's not just because of the 
problems of um, the, you know the massive campaigns of intellectual property theft. And here's another example of you know focusing on which problem is of greater concern: the more than uh, thirty-one thousand times the word cyberterrorism has been uh, explored in newspaper articles and magazines, despite the fact that no one has actually been hurt or killed by a cyber terrorist yet. Doesn't mean they won't try, but again, mm-hmm. none yet versus the massive, not just multi-million, not just multi-billion, but maybe trillion dollar loss of intellectual property, uh, mainly um, going out the door to China. But that said, even though you've got this going on, you have bigger debates about the future of the internet itself, two very different visions. So there's clearly this competition that has um, certain, let us say, parallels to the Cold War and that, you know, two great states, different political visions, a worry that things could escalate in some manner. Um, the particular interesting thing to me here on cyber is in discussions with both Chinese and U.S. senior officials. They talked about how, you know, look, there's all these traditional, so to speak, tensions between us, trade, human rights, border disputes. Those aren't going away. But they talk about how they can do the dance on those. They know how to manage them. Cyber is not only the fastest growing issue, but it's also the one they don't yet know how to do the dance. So if you're doing a Cold War parallel, it's like the early days of the Cold War, where the bottom line norms of behavior haven't been figured out. Not just the norms between the two states, but also senior leaders don't often have a good understanding of what their own states are doing. And there's a real danger there if you look back to the Cold War. One of the, you know, we, we look at some of these crazy zany ideas from the Cold War days, like U.S. Air Force's plan to launch a nuclear missile at the moon just to show the Soviets that right. we could do cool stuff in space too. That was going to be our response to Sputnik, to the uh, one of Curtis LeMay's plans to preemptively nuclear strike the Soviets that actually civilian leaders, it was very good they, they learned on to a couple of years before the Cuban right. Missile Crisis. And we've got the similar kind of challenges here. But beyond this notion of a period where, you know, Dr. Strangelove is taken seriously, you also have lessons of, you know, positive things that can be done. So the idea of nuclear talks that happened during the Cold War, many of them early on, you could have judged as incredible failures. You know, they kept making nuclear bombs. They didn't succeed in that way. But in the long run, they turned out to be incredibly important because the two sides first they were developing working relationships. Second, they were developing an agreed-upon vocabulary. And that became crucial in nuclear talks and is even more challenging in cyberspace where you know it's not just about agreeing to the technical specifications of a cruise missile, what is and isn't a cruise missile. It's also things like you know, very different definitions of an information and an information attack. Um, U.S. has a very different view than Chinese negotiators do. But the bottom line here, the biggest Cold War parallel that we need to think about and, and worry about is the same as any other arms race. You know, there's not a classic arms race except for the one bottom line outcome. Every single arms race, the characteristic is that it tends to involve greater and greater spending but leaves both sides feeling less secure. Right. And I feel like that's where we are today. Like one other interesting thing about the Cold War analogy is that during that time period, 
it was the USA and the USSR governments that had a monopoly on the power about which we all cared. But today, that's not the case with, with cyber anything. So let's depart from state actors and talk a bit about the non-state actors, the, the anonymous collective. Yeah, so it, it's a great illustration of the layout of power here and that much like the internet itself, the power, so to speak, in cybersecurity reflect everything from state actors and governments to corporations to non-state entities that might be anything from a collective of people who love sharing cool cat videos to a collective of people like Anonymous who basically want to carry out various endeavors in support of um, their view of internet freedom. To me, there, there's a we do case studies of you know some of the key players that are out there, be it Cyber Command or another one looking at the case of Anonymous. And one of my concerns, particularly among at least the government leadership on our side that we've dealt with, is there's a lot of uh, myth and mythology and misunderstanding and mushing together of unlike things and, and talking about them in the same way. So take the notion of. Um, cyber attacks. It goes back to right. you know who's behind it. You'll see um, Pentagon leaders talk about how there are millions of attacks on the Pentagon, millions of cyber attacks on the Pentagon every day. Well, the way they're getting those numbers is by lumping together everything from um, essentially address knocks to people trying to carry out some kind of prank to face the website to people who are trying to carry out some kind of political related protest mm -hmm. to people that are trying to sneak in and steal secrets or plant a device that might not only steal secrets but also cause some kind of damage to people um, preparing for an actual armed conflict for war. So we're lumping together all of these things all because they use um, – zeros and ones because they use digital, which would be a lot like lumping together everything from you know a group of teenagers with firecrackers, a group of um, political street protesters with a smoke bomb, a uh, robber with a shotgun, James Bond with his Walter PPK pistol, a terrorist with a roadside bomb, and a Soviet Union cruise missile and saying, well, they're all the same because they use gunpowder. No, they're very different. And so we need to understand the differences. And um, that allows you to disentangle the threat and figure out what you can and can't affect and what you should and shouldn't affect. Since uh, I brought up Anonymous, I, I did want you to address the anecdote about Tom Cruise. What does Tom Cruise have to do with Anonymous? <laughs> well, Tom Cruise, as with all great stories, it begins with Tom Cruise. And uh, we use the example of Tom Cruise uh, appearing in one of the – first more public anonymous campaigns is an illustration of the kind of causes that motivate this collective and understanding how it operates. So essentially, the Tom Cruise link was that there was a, a video of him extolling to a pretty um, uh, extreme Scientology uh, how it was the only one that could cure you of certain things and the like. That video went up online and then Scientology found the video embarrassing and tried to bring it offline um, and go after those that had held it. And that's when Anonymous stepped in. Essentially, Anonymous is, just like it sounds, a, a collective of anonymous computer users and hackers and the like who um, – Interesting enough, even though it's anonymous, it all happens out in the open. Right. Um, when there is 
something or someone that offends their notion of internet freedom. So in this case, it was Scientology uh, trying to shut down the distribution of a video online. In another case, it was the government of um, Zimbabwe trying to shut down news stories about the blood diamond trade that their first lady was involved in. In another case, it was the US government trying to pressure donations to the WikiLeaks organization. In another case, the actually first appearance in the major media was um, going after a group of uh, online child predators. Um, and so whenever this something pops up like that, uh, it's posted on the, the, the chat room channels. And essentially, if a collective builds that we ought to do something about it, uh, they organize and, and announce a campaign and often and then carry out activities against it. And those activities might involve everything from defacing websites to doxing, which is uh, releasing embarrassing um, uh, documents from inside an organization, embarrassing emails and the like, to taking over their channels of communication. There's lots of different things that might be done. And um, that's why the group has been both so influential but also, so frankly, vexing to the powers that be. Not everything they do, though, is safe for their own members. Even though they're called anonymous, I recall in the book, they they try to go after the Zetas Mexican drug cartel. And what happened there? Yeah, that's a really great illustration of this strange new world that we're in, where essentially uh, there was a member of anonymous um, who, because they had been uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, had been um, reporting certain um, things that the Zetas, this uh, very violent, vicious drug cartel, um, had not wanted out there. They get kidnapped. And so then Anonymous essentially tells the Zetas, if you don't release him, we're going to put out a whole series of information into the public about what you do, who you've bought out off, you know, what government officials you've paid off, where your safe houses are. We're going to release this. And that's a, you know, it's a, it's a doxing. It's opening up of a massive amount of information to the Zetas. This was the equivalent of um, almost like a declaration of war, or it's at least because it comes with violent threats to them, because it, while it's not anonymous that would be carrying out violence, if it got out, you know, who they're paying off, where their safe houses are, it would cause um, losses, real losses on their side. And so then the Zetas respond back and say, well, if you do that, not only are we going to kill the people we've kidnapped, we're going to go kill 10 more. And so essentially, these two 21st century organizations, a transnational drug cartel and a transnational hacker collective basically have this online face-off and ultimately kind of declare a ceasefire where the the individual who'd been kidnapped is released but the zetas you know put out this threat and if you if you cross us again we'll kill we'll kill 10 more and it's just a great story um one it's, it's a it's a fascinating example but it's also a great illustration of um the complexities uh, the dynamics, but also how things can very quickly escalate and get out of control in a way that you know political scientists of a generation ago wouldn't even understand this. Well, it might be a segue to this following question. I'm going to quote from the book. You write that cybersecurity is not a realm where the state can simply take over, nor can it have zero involvement. So why on both counts and what's the right balance? Well, so there's this idea that has been pushed by some online activists that um, states 
you have no rights here. You have no responsibilities here. You things of old get out. And there was even a famous kind of declaration of independence saying, you know, you are you are centuries past. Don't try and mess up this online world. That's um, maybe a noble sentiment, but it's just unrealistic. States uh, have an interest in this um, domain and what goes on it on inside it um, because of uh, certainly two very important reasons. One is that they need it for their own operations, just like most of our commerce, most of our uh, communication, our social networking uh, relationships are all happening online. The same for militaries today. 98% of US military communications across the civilian owned internet. Uh, so if you are uh, still want to do traditional things well, you have to care about the online world. But then secondly, most of what states care about in the real world relies on that internet. You know, the very fact that most commerce and communication, et cetera, is happening, the very fact that the critical infrastructure that powers our modern day society all depends on this means that states, if they're doing their job, um, if they're uh, looking out for their citizens, they have to pay attention to what's happening in the online world. So the challenge is how to strike that balance between this being a realm where states um, have a role, but not allowing it to become state-run, which is a real danger in the year ahead uh, in particular, where there's a ongoing international debate where a number of the um, uh, more authoritarian uh, countries out there, the Russias, the the Chinas, uh, have been pushing for more state controls on the operations of the internet itself, right. um, blacklisting websites, blo- throwing up uh, barriers. Um, so you know, and then you've got the other side of this, which is you know the NSA revelations, the monitoring of various kinds of information out there. So while the state has a role. This is still a, uh, I hope and hope it will continue to be a multi-stakeholder realm. Um, it's still a realm where uh, if we allow it to become state-run, it would simply poison and frankly end the internet that we've all grown up to know and love. And that's a real fear for me. So let's let's go to that. The internet we all know and love, we as individuals, as as non-members of government, speaking for myself as you know, not a uh, particular IT guy, not a hacker. You write that the biggest change we can make at the individual level is to change our attitude towards security. You talked about hygiene. You talked about our families. Uh, speak a little bit more to um, how we as individual people in the world need to be thinking about these issues. So you can come at it a couple of ways. One, we've talked about a little bit before, which is uh, thinking about this in our role as, as citizens. And it, you know, becoming knowledgeable, and uh, that knowledge reflecting out in the way that we vote, the expectations we have on our leaders, all these sorts of things. We talked about before the role that you might play in your organization. You know, be it in a business, be it in a think tank, be it in the military. Even if you're not in the IT department, even if you're not in the cyber command, this world still connects to you, and you still have a role in it. But then the final is what you're talking about of um, just individually uh, protecting yourself and your kids and your family online. And there's a, a series of you know 
you could describe them as smart things, but it's a lot like describing washing your hands as smart. It's more just has to become a regular course of action. And it's the most basic, you know, cyber hygiene. There's far more effective ways of going at at how we deal with passwords, Um, not just making them strong and more complex, but multi-factor. The same way you don't just plug a number into the ATM to get your money. You also have a card. We need that same kind of approach to how you're doing your email. If you don't have multi-factor on your Gmail right now, bad idea. (laughs) Um, To how you deal with storing the things that are valuable to you. It's harsh, but I think um, powerful to say this. If you don't want to lose it, prepare to lose it. Expect to lose it. Let me be clear. I could go on and on. That you know, this uh, there's there's parts in this the book, but one of the things that's interesting is doing all these individually. These very basic things. One of the great things, you know, we all go to conferences, and so many of these conferences give out uh, memory sticks and the like, <laughs> which is just you know, sure, yes, I want your spyware on my computer. Um, uh, and you go, that, that's uh, who would ever do? Who would ever make these kind of mistakes? Well, they actually matter back to the grand policy level. So I'll give you two great, funny, sad illustrations of this. One is not respecting the five-second rule. The most important, biggest outside penetration of the U.S. military's secure classified networks happened when a soldier found a memory stick on the ground in a parking lot and went, huh and took it into the base and plugged it into the computer. Now, he wouldn't do that with a candy bar that he found in the dirt. He wouldn't put it in his mouth. He wouldn't put it in his mouth. Somehow he thought it was okay to put it in his computer. computer. To um, clicking on things from people that you don't know that you shouldn't, well, that's how they got into multiple nations' um, top-level networks at the G20 ministerial conference uh, essentially, they sent around an email to a variety of delegates, senior government leaders that um, had uh, essentially said, do you want to see the first lady of France naked? Yeah. Um, she used to be a supermodel and um, many of them clicked, which is how their networks got penetrated. These are very, you know, I'm saying these as silly examples, but the point is, is that there's, um, you know, there's very real, very serious, very advanced dangers that are out there. But when you talk to the specialists, they say, yeah, there's these things, but the vast majority actually comes through the low-level stuff. And um, to put it more directly, there's a, sort of a top 20 controls that you can do. And if you follow those, studies show they'll stop 94% of all threats. And you go, well, what about the other 6%? Well, one, most of you aren't important enough to be targeted by those 6%. But two, talk to the IT guys. If they didn't have to spend so much time on the other 94%, they could concentrate and deal better with that 6%. And then finally, again, most of the advanced stuff is still happening through the low-level things. So that's why knowing how to protect yourself in the most basic ways isn't just good for you. It actually ripples out onto Mm -hmm. your business, onto your government, et cetera. Well, let's uh, let's finish here with something fun. Let's finish with cats, because as we know, cats are so important to the internet. Uh, this is a very serious book. It's a very informative book. I learned a lot, and I expect uh, all the readers will too about how to understand the nature of the issue, 
understand the nature of the threats, and some ideas for uh, dealing with the threats at a national and at a personal level. But uh, you also write at the start of the book, uh, you talk about themes that run through the book. People matter. People matter. Knowledge matters and so on. But you also say cats matter. I'm going to quote, cats matter. In the end, the internet is what we make of it. And that means while serious stuff is at play in it, cyberspace is also a fun, often whimsical realm with memes like dancing babies and keyboard playing cats. So any treatment of it should be sure to capture that whimsy. So I, I, I I applaud you all on your whimsical but serious at the same time take on this issue. Well, thank you very much. And it's part of the idea that first, if you're going to build a book that explains something, if it's dry, if it's not accessible, it defeats the very purpose that started you out on it. The second is just like we were talking about, if we're telling the story of people and organizations, guess what? People and organizations do fun, weird, strange, silly uh, things. And so follow that. And third, um, cats help you illustrate really important, great things. And, you know, so if you want to understand, uh, for example, how the user base of the internet is changing, how it's globalizing and what that means, well, you can illustrate it with the fact that cat videos that we know and love are now starting to be rivaled by goat and panda bear videos, <laughs> which is reflecting that there's more users from sub-Saharan Africa and China coming online. But yeah, it's it's been... Um, we, hopefully, it's a book that uh, people will find to be a useful resource, not just in, in understanding, but that it'll also be entertaining. And lastly, it's, uh, I think, the first and probably the last Brookings book to um, have a Rickroll on the cover. And if you don't know what that means, then uh, you need to read the book. Peter, thank you for your time. All right, take care. To learn more, visit cybersecuritybook.com.